1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number 22 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. A recurring theme on this podcast is that attorneys of all types can build their brands, build their practices, and build their books of business through content in any number of ways, whether that's Mike Murphy on TikTok, Laura Frederick on LinkedIn, or Jim Hacking on YouTube. The bottom line is that there's no shortage of ways for lawyers to build their practices and their books of business online through content. But imagine building your brand online while doing it anonymously because you're an associate at one of the top law firms in the world. My guest for this podcast, Eric Pasifici, did just that. When Eric started out on Twitter anonymously in August 2021, he was an associate at Kirkland and Ellis. After nine months and about 15, 16,000 Twitter followers, he decided to leave Kirkland and Ellis and launch his own firm with two other partners, the SMB Law Group. Now, today, he has over 20,000 followers on Twitter. Remember, for those first nine months when he was at Kirkland and Ellis, he was anonymous on Twitter. We covered a lot of ground in this interview. We talked about why he decided to go big on Twitter versus LinkedIn despite being a big law associate. We talked about his game plan for using Twitter, the mindset he brought to Twitter, why he had to be anonymous when he started out on Twitter, how his presence on Twitter changed his life, and what lawyers and their in-house marketing colleagues need to know about building a personal brand and a book of business on Twitter. Enjoy my conversation with Eric. Eric Pastafici, welcome to Legally Contented. Thanks for joining me today. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me, Wayne. Uh, my name is Eric Pastafici. I am a corporate transactional attorney, um, big law refugee now. Uh, started a um, small boutique law firm that focuses on small business transactional work and um, small business ops, buyers, sellers, and operators. Um, and uh, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, you're obviously being modest here. You left Kirkland and Ellis a few months ago as of the recording of this podcast. You left in May 2022 or so. You left arguably the biggest and best corporate law firm in the world to start your own law firm with a couple of colleagues. And you did it after seeing much success on Twitter. So I'm so happy that you graciously accepted my invitation to chat because I've got so many questions for you about how you went from a big law associate to starting your own firm based on what you've done with Twitter and the people you've met. But let's start with your legal career and give me a sense of your path to the current day. You graduated Duke Law in 2015, but tell me about the journey from Duke to Kirkland and Ellis. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for the the kind description there. And, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, it's a, it's a topic that I'm really passionate about and love the the pod. So I'm really grateful that you gave us the opportunity to be here today. Um, so my path was a little odd. Um, I left Duke and grew up in Michigan, spent some time in Florida, love both of those jurisdictions, but as 
the audience knows, <clears throat> excuse my, my talking voice of uh, recovering from um, uh, COVID a few weeks back, but um, as the audience knows, you know, Michigan and Florida are not exactly powerhouse places for attorneys to go practice and salary wise. And so um, looked around the country, found Dallas, Texas, and, and decided that at that time, I think above the law had a, a first year lawyer buy, buying power index and Dallas was number one in terms of cost of living and salary. And so my wife and I said, let's go to Dallas. Um, and we got an opportunity with um, Baker Botts uh, in Dallas, Texas. And we got there right at about the time that the Texas legal market started to really evolve away from, and you know, no disrespect to anybody listening or any former colleagues, but you know, I, I think it's pretty clear it, it's evolved to some extent away from the Baker Botts and the Vincent and Elkins and towards the Kirkland analysis and the Simpson Thatchers um, over the last seven to eight to 10 years. Um, so showed up at Baker Botts in year one, um, had a great experience, great colleagues, um, loved the, the city of Dallas. But at the end of my first year, a big group of the youngest and best partners at Gibson, uh, or, excuse me, at Baker left uh, to form the Houston office of Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. And it was kind of like the writing was on the wall. These were the people who had recruited me and they were going to a top 10 law firm. And so the opportunity was was too good to pass up. So left, um, joined Gibson for the better part of, of five years, had a great experience in Dallas. Um, but as I mentioned previously, we weren't from Texas. We had children. And so my wife said, you know, let's, let's go find somewhere else to settle down. Um, we looked at the markets that existed at the time, um, Denver, Colorado, you know, very desirable place to live. And we have a little bit of family up there. So my wife twisted my arm and got me to go join the Denver office of Morrison and Forrester. Um, we landed at Morrison and Forrester in December of 2019. I started in January. Um, and two months later we got sent home, uh, due to COVID. <clears throat> and so, Worked remotely from you know beautiful Boulder, Colorado for the better part um, of a year for MoFo. Had a great experience um, with those guys. Was doing private tech M and A uh, for companies out of Silicon Valley. Did some big deals for like Amazon and other folks um, in that same echelon. Um, and then and then Kirkland called. You know, right at the hiring boom, we we're going through the, the COVID boom. They were giving away huge bonuses. They said, you know, I think the negotiations went. Um, you know, pretty fast. They were like, move back to Texas. And I said, well, I can't do that for family reasons. They said, okay, stay in Colorado. Um, and I said, well, do you mind if I move to Florida um, where I had always wanted to be, but if, but not for legal salaries. And they said, we don't care where you are. And in fact, that's a state with no income tax. So fantastic. So moved down to, uh, to Florida um, and was working remotely for Kirkland for uh, about a year. Um, and while working for Kirkland and just to back up a little bit, I had fallen in love a few years ago, Wayne, with a, a, a concept called entrepreneurship through acquisition. It's a really awesome um, new phenomenon and business buying generally small business buying is not a new phenomenon, but folks leaving Harvard business school and, and saying, instead of going to McKinsey or going to Goldman, I'm going to go buy, you know, an HVAC business that, has a million dollars in earnings and is sold for two and a half to four times that use SBA debt and, you know, go be a CEO at 27 and a millionaire by my early thirties. Um, that's a new phenomenon. And uh, something I got really excited about in about 2017 set on the idea for a couple of years. And then during COVID there was an explosion uh, in social media of people in this community, this entrepreneurship through acquisition or SMB community, um, in social media, you know, small business owners and small business 
buyers of all walks of life, you know, really sophisticated folks, like, you know, leaving Boston Consulting Group and executives for um, CBS in LA, you know, uh, military folks at the Pentagon, you know, all anonymously on Twitter, you know, talking about small business ownership and small business acquisition. And so I wanted to get in on that conversation. Um, and what what I had to do at the time, because I was at Kirkland and Ellis, frankly, and I, I don't know that I've ever told this story publicly, um, but I, I had to do it anonymously because I didn't think that it would jive well with big law practice. I didn't think that you know I could do it for legal advertising reasons as well. I was a little bit concerned about the ethics around that. Um, probably a little bit overly cautious. Um, I think you and I actually had some back and forth at one point about the 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 rules in a certain jurisdiction. Yeah, I think it was the Florida rules. Yeah, and they're 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 pretty intense, but for good reason. And so, really wanted to make sure that I was on the right side of that in terms of uh, making sure everything I was doing was strictly educational, informational, and there wasn't any perception that I was trying to monetize. Um, just to be, you know, to kind of tread lightly. Um, and uh, you know, it, what I did, frankly, was I approached it from a perspective of I wanted to network with folks in the community. I wanted to learn. And I thought at that time, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for me to figure out a way to go buy a business and frankly, leave the law. Um, and so that was my initial objective was to get to know people, network. Um, and, it, and the relationship building was incredible. Um, so I started my Twitter August 23rd of last year. And what I did is I, you know, I had a big group of people on social media that were interested in M&A. I'm a M&A lawyer for a large law firm. And so I just started putting out information, stuff that frankly, your audience would probably view as very elementary on M&A, but to, you know, uh, guys on main street that are business operators, it was, you know, helpful information. And so I was able to build a lot of information or a lot of relationships, excuse me, by just providing value coming at it from a perspective where I wasn't trying to monetize. I wasn't trying to sell any products. I was really just trying to learn, provide value and network. Um, and it went extremely well, um, you know, built a lot of relationships over the course of really six months from August to the end of 2021. It became pretty apparent. I was sending a lot, I was getting a lot of inbound traffic in the direct messages um, for people who were looking for deal lawyers and what I quickly realized is, you know, there's a lot of good lawyers who will do small business work, but they really don't want the work, Wayne. You know, your your audience, you know, is interested in doing $50 million, $100 million M&A or, or transactional deals, or it really, the economics, It's the perception is that the economics don't really work out. Um, and so, you know, I was taking all this work from all these guys that I had, had built relationships with and really cared about as people and wanted them to, you know, have good legal options and realize that there really aren't any in the marketplace uh, presently. Um, you know, like I said, there's good lawyers. I don't mean to denigrate. There's good lawyers who will take this deal, but these, these deals get put on the back burner when those larger transactions come through the door. And so there's a product market miss um, in the current legal marketplace, or it's, it, it's just a breakdown between how these buyers are finding lawyers and the lawyers that currently exist. So um, we had decided myself and another partner who I started my career actually at Baker Botts with, who's an incredible lawyer. He started his career at Cravath in London, worked his way through Cooley, different stops, was, was in-house at a Fortune 500 company. He was a little bit more entrepreneurial like me. We started having some conversations. I started showing him because I wasn't telling 
very many people that I was this anonymous attorney because I was very concerned about um, losing my job at Kirkland. I was very concerned about legal ethics. And I had, frankly, I had a big signing bonus kind of hanging over my head at Kirkland that I was um, worried about being called back um, if something went, went south. So I shared it with him privately and, you know, he, he saw what I was seeing. So this, this opportunity is really incredible um, to, to build a practice through social media. Um, and he got on board after a couple months of chatting and frankly, just vetting the opportunity. And then through social media, we were able to find a third partner who is, is, is an incredible lawyer, but incredible business guy. He actually went to UVA law school, spent three years as a deal lawyer at, at Foley, um, and then decided, Hey, I actually want to go buy businesses myself. And so he switched over to the other side of the table after a couple of years. Um, and so we, we brought him in to kind of have a hybrid for the small business practice where we have really good legal transactional experience. And we also have really, um, substantive business transactional experience. You know, we, we've sat, um, our third partner, Sam has sat in the entrepreneur's seat, you know, many times over and understands, the negotiations from the business perspective and the, you know, what's at stake for the entrepreneur. So really, really awesome. We kicked off in May of this year and have had a great reception. Um, we are servicing a lot of the same folks that we've built relationships with over the last year. And so, um, uh, and last thing I'll say on my journey here, just to, to um, color a little bit more for the audience. I, I actually had a, a call recently with a, a partner um, at Gibson who was a a mentor of mine throughout the first couple of years of practice, excuse me. Um, and he couldn't believe that I had started my own law firm. He said, you were the last person that I would have thought would have gone and started your own law firm. I would have thought you'd be running a cannabis dispensary or something before you'd be doing that. And, um, you know, I, I, and I think that that point just accentuates, um, how much this opportunity has just been really incredible. So, um, I should make a full disclosure here that the HBR guide to buying a small business, think big, buy small, own your own company. That book is currently sitting on my nightstand. I am about nine tenths of the way through. So I am with you. I am drinking that SMB Kool-Aid. And there is a stat that I've seen you recite, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but there's a stat that I've seen you recite a couple of times now. That might even be your mantra these days regarding baby boomers and the yeah. amount of baby boomers retiring and what that might mean for the number of small and medium-sized businesses to be available for purchase. Off the top of your head, do you remember where that number is of baby boomers retiring? Yeah, for sure. So the, the statistic comes from the book written by a guy named Walker Diable. It's called Buy Then Build. And the thesis is, and it's, it's true, it's the silver tsunami that's coming and it's being talked about a little bit in the Wall Street Journal and kind of flirted with. Um, but there is $70 trillion of baby boomer wealth that's set to be transitioned from the baby boomers to Gen X and the millennials. Of course, we always forget about Gen X, but to those two generations um, over the course of, and at the time they started compiling these statistics, they said by 2028 or 2030, that obviously was pre-COVID. So it's evolving a little bit, but of that $70 trillion, Wayne, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to $10 trillion of that wealth is small American small businesses that don't have an affiliated individual to take the business, meaning son, daughter, nephew, you know, brother, nobody in the family wants the business. So the business owner is faced with the proposition of either shutting that business down, which makes no sense, or taking it to the marketplace. And so the book you just referenced, the HBR guide, 
was the seminal piece in this field. And what they realized is that those businesses are incredible and they're, they're what are characterized as quote unquote boring businesses or the book calls them enduringly profitable businesses. This is, you know, your local HVAC, commercial cleaning, you know, uh, parking lot paving, um, you know, B2C businesses that have barriers to entry and that are printing money through what your audience and, you know, people with fancy degrees that went to fancy schools would never in a million years imagine that right now, if you're sitting at you know, if you're if you're an equity partner at an Amlaw 150 firm, you're probably being out earned by somebody who, who owns a local commercial cleaning business. Um, and these Harvard students realize that. And of course, now it's been disseminated out pretty far and wide that, um, like I said before, instead of going to McKinsey and killing myself for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I'll go right out of uh, HBS buy a you know, a, a, some sort of enduringly profitable, boring business for two and a half to four times earnings. So if the business is earning a million bucks, I buy it for two and a half to $4 million with the objective of paying that debt off. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm, uh, you know, a debt, a debt free, uh, individual in my early thirties with millions of dollars in cash flow a year. And so it's a really intoxicating proposition and, uh, frankly, when you break down entrepreneurship, the risk between starting your own business from scratch, even with the best idea in the world, the, the likelihood of success is very low. But going out and buying a stable business with a, with a good reputation, the risk is, is much, much less. And so um, it's a phenomenon I think we're going to progressively hear more and more about over the next couple of years. And you and I could nerd out about this this phenomenon within the legal industry. I mean, imagine the mom and pop law firms across the country who have good names in their communities, but aren't active with social media, aren't doing pay-per-click or other paid advertising, and could expand three, four, five, ten times at least with a new owner who comes in. And really, this is, I guess, true for all kinds of these businesses, where with a fresh set of eyes and with perhaps a bit more comfort with technology and marketing and the way of the world today, you have these hidden gems that are already producing cash flow, but could produce many more multiples of that cash flow with a new set of eyes and new ownership. So it's fascinating. And I want to bring this back to your move to Twitter. And I'm curious, you mentioned before that you kind of had this interest, this hobby in ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. But before you were active on Twitter as a creator, as a content creator and a poster, were you on Twitter lurking in the background, looking at what people were talking about? Did you contemplate perhaps going on to LinkedIn and attempting to talk to that audience the same way? Because where you sat as a big law attorney, a big law associate, you have this peer group of companies you're working for, and most people say, okay, well, I am doing white collar criminal litigation for these large Fortune 1000 companies. That has to be my target audience for the rest of my life because that's what I'm doing today, and it just makes sense. I'm curious, A, about Twitter versus LinkedIn because so many lawyers and business people are on LinkedIn. Were you on Twitter versus LinkedIn? And then why start to look at SMB as opposed to staying at your top high-end M&A type work and clients and issues? Yeah. So I'll, I'll link up questions one and three about lurking and why SMB, and then I'll come back to LinkedIn. I lurked for a long time. Um, I, I 
knew who the cast of characters were because there's such a small percentage of folks that are actually sharing content and you kind of, you, you, you learn who they are, you know, Twitter is very revealing. People are sharing personal things and they're sharing all kinds of um, thought ideas. They're sharing, you know, there's this concept of building in public where a lot of business owners are um, building their businesses and they're sharing frankly more than they probably should in ter- traditional circumstances or more than your audience would probably advise them to do, but the they're, what they're realizing is that there's such an incredible abundance of opportunity that it literally doesn't even matter if folks come and and compete with them if they're doing things the right way. Um, and and I was lurking for a long time because I I fell in love with the space in 2017 and was very intoxicated by the idea of buying my own business. Over time, I've realized that my best skill set is as a attorney and advisor investor and probably not as a, an, uh, an operator. There are some really incredible operators out there. Um, so I've made that transition. Yeah. I lurked for a long time and I learned the cast of characters and I had, you know, a very typical uh, Twitter account, I would say um, under my own personal name, which was, you know, I was following, um, you know, politicians and sports and a little bit of business and real estate and, you know, uh, FinTwit, financial Twitter, and kind of a broad spectrum of just kind of interesting things that I had thrown together. What I found was it was it was a little stressful, right? Because I was getting the news, I was seeing what Dave Portnoy was doing, I was seeing all kinds of things, and it was a little bit overwhelming uh, most days, especially as we we're going through the pandemic and, and whatnot. But but I loved this business community of it, this SMB Twitter. I love this group of people. They have the right idea about life. They're focused on building and progress and healthy things. And so I told my wife last August, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to make an anonymous Twitter call everything. So get rid of even the sports um, and just focus on the business aspect of it and make it a little bit more efficient piece of my life. Um, and, and frankly, if I do it anonymously, then I can start tweeting a little bit. Um, and so, um, so that, that's how that evolved and the why SMB piece. And it's, you know, it's largely what I just said. It's, that I love the space and I love the idea and I, I love the cast of character. You know, the people who follow me, Wayne, um, and that I follow, you can look at, you can, there's plenty of sites where you can um, dissect the analytics. These, these people are all largely the same and they're just like me. They're 25 to 45. They're largely male. I wish it was more diverse, but it's, it's, it's not right now. Um, I don't know how you solve that, but they're, they're largely male um, and they're, you know, most of them have children. Most of them have a family. Most of them are either trying to buy a business, um, are in the process of buying a business or are running a business. And so it's a very consistent group of people that I just happen to fit in very well with um, in terms of my hobbies. And so I'm able to kind of, um, and it's something I think we'll get into more, but I'm able to um, be myself on Twitter, if that makes sense. I'm able to to share my hobbies. I live in Florida. I love all kinds of um, things like golfing and fishing and spending time with my kids and going to water parks and doing dad stuff and eating pizza and you know stuff that I think really resonates with that cohort. And but also sharing, um, you know, making sure that I'm focused on sharing helpful, substantive, legal content that adds value to the community and helps people. Um, and so, um, yeah. And, and then in terms of why, you know, haven't I 
gone after LinkedIn. There really wasn't an analysis there when I started because I had to be anonymous and you cannot be anonymous on LinkedIn. And I don't even know that I realized the, the power of the LinkedIn platform or that I even understand it to this day. Um, it's something that I, I think I need to engage with a little bit more. There are some really incredible people that I've been introduced with that it's there's like this funny line where, you know, I have no following on LinkedIn. I'm not engaged. Um, and then I have a pretty large following on Twitter. Um, and then there's these other lawyers that I've gotten introduced to like um, a great lawyer out of Indianapolis named Scott Oliver, who's uh, very prolific on LinkedIn. And then like, you know, a couple months ago, he got introduced to Twitter. Somebody was like, he got to get on Twitter and he, you know, he's got a very small following on Twitter. And so there's this juxtaposition, like it's almost like two clicks and, and it's very different writing from what I've uh, observed. And it's a very different audience. You know, when I think about my LinkedIn and frankly, if I'm being candid with your audience, Wayne, I'm a little intimidated by LinkedIn, right? Because the first group of people that are going to see the stuff that I'm writing on LinkedIn is going to be, you know, my colleagues from Kirkland and Gibson um, and, you know, guys who are serious, large law firm lawyers that do, you know, high stakes transactions and, you know, some of the stuff that I write on Twitter is geared towards a different audience. You know, it's geared towards a small business buyer or operator and it's much more elementary. Uh, so there's, there's almost an intimidation factor where I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't know that I want to those two groups of people to see the same level of content. So maybe there's an adaptation that I need to evolve where I'm sharing similar content. Um, you know, most of what I've written, the actual, you know, um, legal content is, M&A masterclass stuff, you know, if you're an entry level buyer, you've, you've never, you know, you don't know anything about M&A, here's a guide in a newsletter format to, to buying a small business. Um, and so some of that stuff can be um, adapted. But I think what I'm also learning, Wayne, is that as lawyers, you know, we have a learning curve on content creation, where I recently had somebody who I'm friendly with, who's actually a small, uh, he's in the SMB space and he's somebody I've grown a relationship with over the last year. And I had him write a hook for a thread. It's my thread, all the content about LOIs and maybe I'm revealing too much here, but all of the content about LOIs is created by me. It was a thread about, you know, evaluating the LOI. I ran the thread about six months ago with a hook that I wrote. And um, it was very lawyerly, you know, here's how to analyze an LOI. And it did okay, you know, a couple, you know, you know, thousands of impressions, whatever. Um, I had him write the, the hook this time and it was like totally over the top, you know, and, and uh, it got hundreds of thousands of impressions just by changing that top line content. So going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that Twitter and LinkedIn are such vastly different platforms and you have to approach them, uh, I think, differently. And I don't, right now, I don't know that I have the LinkedIn skill set yet. So stay tuned. You're making a great point, which is that you have to go where your would-be clients are. You have to go where your audience is going to be. And if you are a big firm partner who is focused on GCs, at you know biopharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies or fintech companies, you're likely going to stick with the LinkedIn world because that's where those people are. But if you were a 
copyright and trademark lawyer servicing creators. Well, hell, you better stay on Instagram and TikTok and get away from LinkedIn because your audience isn't going to be there. So what you were doing was obviously prudent in that you had been lurking in the background in Twitter and you saw that even if LinkedIn had potential, there was so much activity on Twitter that it made sense for you to be on there. And I've lamented to you over direct messages on Twitter that I have not seen the kind of legal marketing Twitter that I hoped I would be able to see like there is SMB Twitter or financial Twitter or real estate Twitter. Most of the people who hire me, most of the people would be in-house marketers and business development folks at large law firms, AMLAW 200, AMLAW 100 firms. They're all on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn today, as of the time we are talking, seems very much to favor the Facebook-like personal content. There's personal photos. There are people talking about their personal lives and their tragedies and their triumphs. And that's all well and great. But I have gotten the sense from Twitter, I'm lurking in the SMB space because I'm interested in it and certainly inspired by what you've been able to build with your account. The SMB Twitter feels like it's a lot more substantive. And it's a lot more of an opportunity for someone like you, whether uh, anonymous or not, to go in and actually give helpful information. And I feel like the helpful information that I put out on LinkedIn is drowned by the personal photos and the more personal natured content. And it just gets drowned out. Whereas Twitter, yeah, I've seen pieces of pizza and I've seen images of your weekends on there. But most of the time I'm seeing thoughtful, substantive information that your audience is going to want to hear. So I'm curious how you've gone about the evolution of your content. When you went onto Twitter anonymously in August, 2021, you obviously had to start somewhere. And I'm curious what the evolution was of that content. Were the tweets that you were making last August, do they look like the posts you're making today? Or was there an evolution in what you were talking to the world about? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Wayne. And I, I think I'll, I'll back up just a step. I think your your point about LinkedIn having more of a target audience for a big law partner is probably true. I'll give you one anecdote and I'm going to identify this person by name. And frankly, I think he's somebody that you should talk to at some point. Um, I'm going to give a plug to a guy named Bradford Hardin. And Bradford is, and you may know Bradford, but he is the um, the chair of financial services at um, Davis Wright and Tremaine in DC. He's a fintech lawyer. And for his niche, um, there are probably, I think he, he put out a statistic recently and he said there's probably 200 potential target clients for his niche in the entire country. And he said that notwithstanding that <clears throat> very small target market through his relationship building on Twitter, he has picked up um, a number of, of paying clients through his relationship building on Twitter. So I think you might be surprised who's there and who's who's watching. Um, in terms of the evolution of content question, um, it, and and what you're seeing on on Twitter is, I, I think you're right because we're we're character limited, right? Like you can write long form on LinkedIn. People are able to, and some people are better at writing quote unquote copy. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but I guess writing more. Uh, succinctly, you could probably break down copy for hours here for us, but um, writing succinctly um, on Twitter. Um, so you really get to, you know, you're forced to, it's not a great platform for sharing pictures, frankly. Um, 
I still do. And I still share silly stuff and pizza Fridays and stuff like that with my kids. And when we go to Disney and, you know, dad stuff, but it's a better platform for seeing inside of people's heads. And I think that's such a valuable resource. And so if you're a good lawyer or if you're good at anything you, you, you do, whether it be operating a business or being a service provider, you know, people will have an opportunity to see the substance behind you before they even meet you. And so a number of clients that have come to me recently, excuse me, have said, I already know what you're capable of and how you think, because I've already seen it on Twitter. And I think that that, and and I'm, I'm certain that there are people out there that have seen what I'm capable of and seen the way that I think and have said, we're not a good fit and are not reaching out. Right. And so in comparison to running Google ads, where I say I'm a transactional lawyer, do you want to sell your business? And then we meet and then there has to be this whole process. A lot of people that are coming to me already feel like they know me. And frankly, I already feel like I know them depending on what they've, they've done. So it's a really awesome platform. I started out, the evolution of my content was frankly, trying to build relationships with the cast of characters that I knew from watching, right? And I did that by asking questions and learning from them and had tremendous success. Everybody, uh, and I won't say everybody, but I have had almost no instances in a year where I reached out to somebody and said, hey, we should connect. You know, I've been watching you and think you're fantastic. You know, should you do you want to network? Do you want to, you know, learn from each other, whatever, get to know each other. I've had almost zero instances, and I actually think that the number is zero, where they've said no. Um, it's a really welcoming community. So I started out with the getting to know people phase, and then I and then it and then it was the okay, now I'm getting traction. This is interesting. And I switched to how how can I take it a step further? And so I introduced something last fall um, where I was doing a weekly MA masterclass. And we ran for a while and I picked up a couple co-authors and I picked up a bunch of guest authors who I met entirely through Twitter that, you know, had different niches. They were business buyers or they were business coaches or accountants, um, tax people um, to write pieces, insurance people to write pieces. Um, And so really tried to create something um, over that period of time. And then we ran into the, we're now in a, a period of time that I would call the I'm mostly fielding questions. There just isn't enough time and uh, in the day to um, to be doing more than question answering, but which is very delicate because there's legal ethics, you know. And so I'm not answering any specific questions, but more like being a resource. And I've tried to to position myself to be a resource for the community where I'm a connector of people and whatever. And it's 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 worked out extremely well. I feel like if you, I, I think the singular reason, Wayne, that I had success, if anybody in this audience is interested, is that I approached it genuinely with the intention of not my, I had no idea. I mean, if you had asked me a year ago, are you going to start a law firm? Are you going to leave Kirkland and Ellis and start a law firm based on Twitter? My my answer would have been there's 0.0% chance of that. Um, but so by approaching it with that mindset, genuinely with that mindset, people can detect that. Right. And so they were much more receptive to the information that I was putting out, the relationship building that I was doing, um, and the whole presence on the platform. So I would encourage your audience if they try to go down this route to try to approach it with a sustaining attitude and an understanding that 
people are going to be pretty turned off if you try to monetize in, in the short term. And that's probably easier said than done. I was working at Kirkland Ellis. I had a big salary. Um, so I was able to do that. Uh, other people in your audience who need to feed their families may not have the same ability to sit back on a platform and put out content, and not monetize for a while. But that, that would be the optimal approach, in my opinion. Eric, you make a number of great points. And by the way, I think that we have to state the obvious, which is back when the great resignation was in its prime in 2021, and you were reading law.com and law 360 articles about these mysterious corporate associates who were leaving their already big law firms and going to even bigger law firms and getting these once in a lifetime signing bonuses, everyone was thinking, what kind of associate is that? So we found one. So I'm so proud Ugh. that we've spotted a unicorn in the wild. And of course, the irony is that you are now blazing a path of entrepreneurship with your own law firm. But still, I think it's funny that we finally got one, folks. You made a lot of points about people already having a sense of who you are and what you could do by following you on Twitter. And I think that is, in a nutshell, the benefit of thought leadership and content marketing at a corporate law firm, no matter the size of the firm, no matter the practice, being able to put out content that people can find on their own that is always advocating for you 24-7, 365, when you are with your family, when you are sleeping, when you are doing client work, you have this content out there and people get to know you and like you and trust you based on this content. And the irony is that you've got a lot of older partners at law firms where they came up with symphony tickets and ball game tickets and suites at the stadium and golf events and speaking engagements. And all of that stuff still works today. But with technology, you could be doing that 24-7, 365. An appearance on a podcast is basically a speaking engagement that can be on repeat for time memorial because you have captured the knowledge giving of an attorney in the course of an interview versus that attorney flying to Miami, flying to Dallas or New York or DC for a conference, speaking for a half hour, and that being that. So you make a great point about the stickiness of the content and the work it could do for you. No one has to be persuaded by you that they should retain you because the proof is already in the pudding. They've seen your thoughtful analysis. They've seen your thoughts and your knowledge and your wisdom. And by the way, there are plenty of lawyers who go, whoa, whoa, I don't want to be giving away my special sauce because that's what makes me special. And if I give it away on Twitter or LinkedIn or in a client alert, then you know I'm going to lose out on future revenue and future clients. I always say, no, that's totally wrong for one main reason. Your special sauce is the knowledge you have about a topic, the wisdom that you have gained through being a lawyer and, and being a human who's lived life. And then third, the ability to apply your knowledge and wisdom to your specific client situation. You don't have the third when you are talking generally about letters of intent or SBA loans. You don't have particular situations. You have general knowledge and general wisdom. So I always laugh when attorneys are concerned about special sauce because yeah, you've got it. And that was that's what makes you you, but it's not going to come out on a tweet thread regarding five things to, to know about the next letter of intent that you sign or that you offer. Talk to me a little bit about early signs that you knew Twitter was working because social media is infamous for having vanity metrics. Like, oh, wow, I've got 25 likes on this tweet or 75 retweets or 600,000 views. But 
that might not mean anything if no one is actually coming to you and saying, Eric, I have a legal problem. I could use your help. And you say to yourself, you are my ideal client. Let's chat. I'm curious, when did you start to see Twitter working both on the vanity side of things, people seeing your content, sharing it, and then when you saw it start to lead to bigger and better things as in opportunities being presented to you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, so I'm concerned about special sauce. I'll just comment on that really quickly. And that's one of the fundamental themes of like the Twitter community, right? That everybody needs to appreciate is that there is an abundance mindset with this group of people and they're right. There is plenty for all of us. There is no reason for any of us to walk through life holding closely to our chest all of our secrets and share that stuff and you, it will come back to you tenfold. I promise you, it's very difficult to do for most people. And it's antithetical to some respect to human nature. But I promise you, if you're a giving individual, whether it's professionally or personally, that will come back to you. And so if you're if you're listening right now, and, you're, and that's something you struggle with, work on it. I have conversations all the time with young lawyers that are in the same business that I'm in. And I tell them exactly what we're doing and they tell me exactly what they're doing. And I, we always laugh. And I always say, I'm pretty sure our dads would not be having this conversation right now. I don't care. I know that there's going to be plenty for all of us if we do this the right way. Um, and so if there's anybody listening that wants to reach out or frankly is interested in joining a different type of law firm, you want to get out of big law, you want to have the flexibility to build an online presence. You want to work remotely. You want to make a great living, do awesome work, uh, build something for yourself, reach out. I'm happy to, you can come work with us if you'd like to, or I'm happy to, uh, to, to tell you what you need to do to make it happen. Um, so your, your second question, or that wasn't a question, but the, the question was about when did I know that Twitter was working? The answer is, I don't know if there was a specific moment, um, but for me, it's not necessarily about generating business as much as, you know, quantitatively, as much as it is qualitatively. The relationships that I've been able to build through Twitter, I've done more relationship building through Twitter in 12 months than I did in, in almost a decade in large law firms. You're isolated in big law. You're in your office. You're working a lot. You have a limited scope of people you have um, uh, the ability to build relationships with. Most of those are practicing lawyers that are doing the same thing that you are. That doesn't really help you until much later on when they go off and they're GCs and you have those relationships. So it's long-term. Um, the limited scope of clients that you have the ability to build relationships with as a large law firm um, associate are you know folks that you're working for already and already have relationships with your existing firm. It's very challenging, I think, to be entrepreneurial in the halls of a large law firm. With Twitter, I was able to build more relationships in, in 12 months than I did in, in uh, eight years and seven years, whatever it was, in large law firms, and by an order of 100. Um, qualitatively, you know, I've been able to build relationships with people who are SBA lenders, due diligence providers, CPAs every imaginable type of service. If I ever have um, somebody who's looking to buy a uh, catering company, you know, I'll put out a tweet and say, does anybody know, uh, does, you know, is, is anybody here able to help with a catering company? And I'll get 12 responses. Um, you know, I had personal stuff. My, my son was diagnosed a few months ago with 
pediatric epilepsy and um, he needs, um, we need to adopt a keto diet to treat his pediatric epilepsy. Um, and I put out a tweet, you know, ke- you know, keto experts, pediatric epilepsy experts. And I got, this is not an exaggeration, hundreds of responses of people saying, look at this keto book, look, talk to this expert, read this podcast. I've been keto for five years. I've been keto for 10 years. I mean, truly incredible. I had a title issue with a home that I was trying to buy. I put out a tweet. I got 20 responses from various title companies around the country. I talked to the executive vice president of a major title company in, uh, in New York City within 24 hours that helped me through this title issue. Um, and so the fact of the matter is, is it, I don't know that there was a singular moment, but it's worked and it's worked not just in the singular, I'm trying to monetize a law firm and quickly um, you know, generate some, some lead flow. It's worked on a substantive life level. So it's, it's really been a really awesome thing for me. Well, that's a great point. And you're basically describing the all lawyers emails that we would send at large law firms, but it's like on steroids and then injected with some kind of comic book serum to make it even bigger. Because every time you would ask your 19,000 followers about an issue or you have a question, you're looking for an answer, some of your followers would then retweet that to their followers. And all of a sudden there could literally be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are being presented with your question and who could provide an answer. And when you get to that wide of a net, I would certainly imagine there's going to be a number of people who have some experiences, no matter what question you might be asking, they're going to find a way to provide an answer or send you to some resource. Because when the web is that big of networking and contacts, surely you can find answers. You also make a point about how Twitter was beneficial for your personal life. And I think that is something that too often attorneys discount. They don't understand that by getting out there, merely by networking, but also on social media, you can expand your network. And it's not just about people who can refer you business or send you business. It can be people who can be in a position to make your life better in whichever way you want to find that, whether it is helping treat your child who's just been diagnosed with a medical issue, whether it is an issue with buying a home, whether it's repairing a car, whether it is some question for networking for purposes of a spouse or a family member to get a new job or they have a question. It's amazing what you can do by building an audience and look no further than some celebrities like Kim Kardashian, like others who once they build an audience, they can put products out there. And these things become bestsellers because they've already developed the audience. They've put in the hard work to develop an audience over time. And when you are a lawyer with 19,000 followers or a digital marketer with 100,000 followers, and you are talking about offerings you have, whether it's a masterclass, a free masterclass, like what you were doing, or some kind of paid information product about how to start your own law firm, or you could publish your own ebook regarding buying a small, medium-sized business in 2022, all of a sudden you have an audience because they've trusted you. They've seen your content over time and they understand that you are the real deal and that you're likable and they could rely on you that whatever you say or do is going to be true, it's going to be accurate, and whatever you are selling them, if and when there comes a chance or an opportunity to monetize, you've built that trust over time by continuously giving them information that is helpful and relevant and hopefully compelling. 
I've got about three last questions for you. I'm wondering what advice would you give the following two groups of people? One, law firm marketers and BD folks, and then second, lawyers themselves regarding being more active on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on social media generally, and putting themselves out there. What would you tell management about how they should approach lawyers? And what would you tell the lawyers about how they should go about doing this on their own? That's a great question, Wayne. I, I mean, I think the biggest thing for law firm marketing departments to understand is that from the perspective of a prior associate, and, and folks may differ than me, but I, like I described earlier, um, I felt very challenged being inside the law firm to, to market and to develop business. And I thought about it through the traditional lens of I'm going to have to build these relationships with clients. It was very difficult to do. It, it just is. And there's a lot, you know, the clients you're introduced to are already clients of your peers. And so if you want to be an equity partner at Kirkland and Ellis, yes, you climb the ranks, you inherit those institutional clients and there's enough for everybody. And that's great for the 99% of people who are not going to be an equity partner at Kirkland and Ellis or could be, but have to develop business in a different way, allow them to utilize social media. I mean, I think that there isn't direct discouragement. Of course, we get the, you know, the training when you're, when you onboard or uh, I guess at different points in the year about being careful about social media and how to approach it and how to not reveal um, confidential information, but there's never direct encouragement to utilize alternative means of marketing of associates. And frankly, I had just assumed that it was something I probably should not do. Um, and maybe that was a mistaken assumption. And I think that these firms are going to have to trust their, their people. Right. And so I, I can imagine what, you know, the director of marketing for Cooley is thinking when they're hearing this, they're going, well, that's a dangerous proposition, right? All of a sudden we go from having one singular voice as a firm to having a thousand individual voices. But the distance that a thousand individual voices will travel is order of magnitude further than one singular voice. And frankly, each of those individual voices is going to be a lot more interesting to your audience than a law firm's institutional voice, if that makes sense. And you have to differentiate yourself. I mean, from a lawyer's perspective, when I, you know, did the OCI thing and learned about the law firms, because of course, I don't, you know, some folks are different and come from legal backgrounds. I didn't know any law firms before I did OCI. I kind of learned about the field, the MLAW 200 through um, that you know recruiting process and then through years inside those institutions and reading the legal news that kind of developed over time. Um, and the more I knew the differences between the firms, the more they all felt exactly the same. You know, it's the classic, you go to OCI and you ask a firm what their culture is and literally every single lawyer in every single room is going to say, we're collegial. We're the most collegial firm. We're all best buddies and everything's fantastic. Um, and they all say the same thing. With marketing, you cannot be saying the same thing as everybody else. You cannot be doing it in the same way as everybody else, or it's just not going to travel and it's not going to resonate with the people that you need it to resonate with. And I get that you'd want to keep doing the traditional 
you know, CLE style, you know, we rent a room at the Ritz and all the local GCs that our clients come and they get breakfast and they mingle and they get, you know, three hours of CLE and whatever. And, and then they all go home, keep doing that stuff, right? Like that stuff is helpful as well. And it sustains relationships and whatever, but adopt some different approaches as well. And it's frankly, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be easier said than done because time is such a difficult commodity. And here's my plug for you, Wayne. That's where guys like Wayne who run services that can help with this, the value. And I said this to somebody recently who pitched me on my social media and I was reluctant because I'm like, you know, I think part of why it's worked <laughs> is that it's, is that it's, it's authentic. I'm rambling like crazy, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude here. But the, the reason why it resonates with people is because it's real, but if you can be successful and you can help me grow my social media presence, I won't be able to afford to pay you, but I won't be able to afford to not pay you. So it's just like that with time. You gotta, um, you, you, you need to make the investment um, and it, it will, the ROI will be enormous. Talking to you about handling your social media on your behalf is like talking to the late great John Madden about helping him with his broadcasting abilities. Yeah. I'm not sure that there's a right fit there. And quite frankly, to your point, social media done well, it's got to be straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, yeah, if you were just posting links to Kirkland's upcoming events, or you were shouting out a colleague who got named to chambers, then yeah, you can have someone else do that. But if you're going to be giving knowledge and engaging with people regarding topics that only you know about, or that you know about much better than a digital marketing assistant who would handle your social media for you, it's a no brainer in terms of why you'd want to stick to your own social media efforts and not want to outsource that. You gave a great answer and I should end our conversation on that answer, but I have to know as someone who for a long time has been interested in entrepreneurship, you are now a bona fide entrepreneur. You own your own business. And we all know that law firms are businesses, the law as a profession, but it's also an industry and law firms are businesses. I'm curious your thoughts, having had a few months underneath your belt, your thoughts about running your own law firm as compared to, and I mean this kindly, the coddling that you and me and every other current and former big law associate has by the nature of the wealth of resources available to us. I remember at Deckert, this was when I started back in 2010, I was like, we have a word processing group and their job is to like retype things and lay things out in Word or Excel. Like, what? We're not supposed to do that ourselves? So there were a number of resources that we all had as big law associates. I am curious your impressions of being an entrepreneur a few months in. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. It's, um, it's, it's a lot. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult. And I'm, I'm the HR department and the finance department. I've got some wonderful partners, so I'm not in it alone. Um, and we have great support, um, but it's, it's a lot of fun, um, you know, building something distinctly ours. Our clients are distinctly ours. So, you know, some of the unusual off hours requests, they, they hit a little bit different when it's your relationship and it's, um, your, uh, your baby, if that makes sense. So it's, it's been a great experience. I tell people that if having kids is the biggest change to the way you see the world, at least to me, it is the largest change to how I see the world and our roles in this world as human beings, 
if being a parent is number one, then maybe 1A or 1B, depending on how you enumerate these, is going to be being a business owner. Because I feel like I have seen the world so differently in the six plus or the almost six years I've been out from Deckard in terms of business and marketing and networking and relationships. And when you have your head down doing high-end legal work, you don't see the way the world works very often. But when you're out on your own and you are communicating with people and building a name for yourself and knowing that to your point, everything you do, the benefits in your back to you because you are the owner and you reap the profits and the losses, it's just a huge, huge game changer in terms of your mindset and the way that you see the world. Eric, you have been very gracious with your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. Can you drop your Twitter handle, drop your new law firm's website and any other information that people could use to get a hold of you if they so choose? Yeah. And, and thanks for having me, Wayne. It's been a lot of fun. Um, my, my Twitter handle is at SMB underscore attorney. Um, our law firm is SMB Law Group. It's um, SMB law.group is the URL. Um, if there's anybody in the audience, Wayne, candidly, that's interested in leaving big law and trying something alternative, um, we're, we're, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we've got um, a, a really growing practice and we're having a lot of fun. And so if you're a transactional attorney that wants to do something entrepreneurial um, or frankly just wants to, uh, to, to learn about the space, I'm happy to, to chat with anybody. Eric, thanks again for your time and best of luck with the new venture. I guess I'll see you on Twitter. Great. Thanks, Wayne. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.